Um, we are going to be kind of all over the place. If you, if you have your Bibles, um, Joshua would probably be a good place to open. We'll, the verse list, if you've got a packet when you came in, there should be a list of, of verses there um, that, of things that we're going to read and talk about tonight. And so we'll, we'll hit a couple of verses in Joshua. Um, but most of the verses that we're going to talk about, in fact, probably all of the verses that we're going to talk about should be in that packet for you. Um, so uh, if you don't have one of those, I would recommend you getting one, uh, not just to fill in the blanks, but obviously uh, so that you'll, you'll be able to follow along with us. Uh, we have been going through uh, a pretty long study now uh, over through the Old Testament. And basically what we've been trying to do or what I've been trying to do is simply just um, demythologize. Are there no packets, Ronnie? All, all the packets are out? Oh, they're all gone. Okay. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Look on with somebody next to you if you don't have one. Uh, there's one right back here, apparently. She's got one. Um, so as, a, as just a side note on this, what, since we're talking about this, um, when we post this online on our website, if you click on the little downloads tab, there is a completed packet that will be there on the downloads tab. So you can, you can download that if you want to keep that and follow along at home. It'll also have the keynote file that I, ha- that I present up here so you can track along with the recording if you want to. Um, or if you're ever out or whatever, you have that. So um, what we've been doing is really trying to take the Old Testament and as we study it and as we look into it, really remove a lot of the fear that we have, a natural fear about when we read the Old Testament. Because there's some, there's some concerns, I think, that we have as we read it that we don't know what's going on. We don't know where these places are. We don't know what these names mean. And so our job really has been to go through this and to really look at the historical context of the situation that the children of Israel find themselves in and kind of help paint a little bit broader picture and and really fill in some of the gaps in the background of what's going on, what the Bible almost expects you to already know coming into it. And so um, in doing that, uh, we come to our time tonight where the children of Israel are on the edge of the promised land. Moses has just died and the baton has been passed to Joshua. And they're getting ready to enter into the promised land. Now, I'm going to say this as just a precursor for tonight. I did not sit down at the computer to put this packet together with the intention of boring you. Okay? I just want to say that. Just make that clear. All right? But, (laughs) however, all right, a big but. The things that we're going to talk about tonight are really laying a foundation for helping you understand or helping all of us understand how it is that the children of Israel can just waltz into the promised land. All right. Um, one of the things that I told you back when I when we started this, we show I showed a picture of the map. Hang on. I'm going to buzz through this real quick because I want to show you this map if I can get there. All right. I showed you this map when you first started. This is the map of um, what we call the Mesopotamian region. This is also known as the Fertile Crescent, the green area right here, okay? All the way down here. We know Egypt. We're really familiar with Egypt, all right? This is where Babylon, Assyria, all over in Mesopotamia between the Tigris and the Euphrates, that area that's really rich soil. It's fertile. That's why they call it the Fertile Crescent. All of civilization pretty much born in this area, or at least Eastern civilization is born in this area. 
Now, what we said about the Canaan area down here where Israel is eventually going to settle, the land that they're about to enter, this is a main thoroughfare. This is a huge attraction for the entire world in this area. Everybody wants control of this little tiny strip of land. Why? Because it connects, if you're in Mesopotamia, it connects you to Egypt. If you're in Egypt, it connects you to Mesopotamia. So it is a land bridge that is just prime real estate. All right. This is Times Square, if you will. All right. Now, what we have in the biblical story is a bunch of immigrants coming over, poor, former slaves coming over and waltzing right into the land and taking Times Square. How does that happen? I mean, really, we have to ask that question. How in the world is that even possible for a group that small and a powerhouse like Egypt over here and some other powerhouses that we're going to talk about today? How is it that with those countries all in the area and everybody wanting this land, that a bunch of former slaves are just going to walk in and take it? How is that even possible? Now, we obviously know the biblical story is I'm going to drive them out before you, okay? But there's more to the picture than just that, all right? Now, that being said, that's kind of what we're going to try to look at tonight. So I'm going to come back to the slide in a minute, but um, let's think about the story that we know so far, going all the way back to the earliest pages of Genesis. First, we know that in order to understand the Bible, I think it's, it's key to, to thinking about this as a story about God's kingdom. How does God's kingdom develop? Well, we know, first of all, he created mankind and he created them in his image. But what does that mean? Remember, way back when we talked about being made in the image of God and what that means. Well, it means that he created mankind to rule and have dominion. Well, does that mean that they were rational creatures? Well, yes, it does mean that they were rational. Does it mean that they had the capacity to worship God? Yes, it means that they had the capacity to worship God. Does it mean that they could talk and walk upright and do a lot of other things that other animals couldn't do? Yes, that, that means that that's how he created them. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. But all of those things are tools that serve to live out his rule and reign on the earth. He tells Adam and Eve, Let's create, let's create mankind in our image. Let, let them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let them have dominion. And he tells them once he created them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Your job being made in my image is to go out and to continue to do what I've already done, what I've done in creating. Your, your job is to go out and take the Garden of Eden and spread it around the world and have dominion over the animals, over the trees, over all things right? So mankind is gifted with that responsibility. But being made in his image is kingly language. It's the language of like a vice regent, that a person that would go out bearing the seal of the king can make decisions on behalf of the king with other countries. He's an ambassador. All right, But instead of Adam and Eve having a ring and a signet ring to make a seal of the divine impression, they actually bear the mark of God themselves. They themselves are the image bearers of God. But then what do we see Adam and Eve doing? 
Well, they're to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over the beasts. And in chapter 3, a beast comes in and has dominion over them. That's not good. Not only that, we know the snakes as unclean animals. These are the animals that they're specifically supposed to tame. And here Adam is sitting back and letting all of this happen. Eve is letting all this happen. But not only that, Adam and Eve seek to, have, seek to gain wisdom by some other means other than God giving it to them. God is supposed to be the supplier. He's the king. Here the vice regent is going out and not only making decisions on behalf of God, but they're actually muddying his name in front of the creatures. They're making a decision to seek wisdom from some other source, namely uh, this tree and disobedience. So they take of the fruit of the tree and therefore really uh, determine that mankind from here on out will seek out wisdom from other means other than God. And so they're punished, they're sent out of the garden, and, but we know there is a promise implicit in Genesis 3.15. What is it? It's there in your verse packet. Somebody read that out loud for us, real loud. All right, there's a promise here that there is an offspring that will come that will do battle with the serpent himself. And the, the, the offspring that is to come will bruise the head of the serpent and the serpent will bruise his heel. We obviously see this fulfilled in Christ, but the point is that God is saying to mankind and saying to the devil himself that this will not always be the case. There is going to be one come who is going to execute my rule and my reign perfectly and will do battle with you. Now, we see the rest of Genesis as God basically crafting this family that are going to be the bearers of this seed that is to come, which will ultimately be Christ. Matthew, we know, picks up on this because his genealogy at the beginning of Matthew. Luke picks up on this in Luke chapter 5. Both of these point back to the fact that Christ is that seed that was promised. Okay, now, so God continues to grow his people from the seed of Abraham. They go into slavery, which he tells them is going to happen, and they continue to multiply in the land so much that, the, that Pharaoh goes, listen, there rose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph and said, oh, this is not good. We need to go out there and really, you know, pound these people into submission and make them our slaves so it will stop. It doesn't. It actually makes it worse. They continue to multiply. They become the greatest presence out there. And so they cry out to God because of slavery. God redeems them uh, through the hand of Moses, brings him into the land, brings the people of Israel or the children of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and to the base of Mount Sinai, where he teaches them his law and shows them how to worship him. And what happens is he gives them the layout of the tabernacle and how they will build it. And the tabernacle's purpose is what? What is the tabernacle's purpose? Allow God to dwell once again with his people. So what we find in the tabernacle is sort of a portable Garden of Eden. God is restoring once again his presence, but not only his presence, he's restoring or encouraging now the people to rule as they were intended to rule in the beginning. But there is a problem. They seek out wisdom another way. And what we find is that all of these image bearers are not 
equipped to appropriately bear the image of God. Of course, we're all image bearers, but to appropriately carry it, just like uh, Adam was intended to do, all of them seem to fail. You have Moses who is there as kind of the, the, the shining seal. Is he going to be it? Is he going to be the one to bring about the kingdom of God on earth and execute it rightly? It turns out, no. He sins. He doesn't even make it into the promised land. Are the people, are they going to live out God's kingdom, God's ideal world? No, turns out no, no. They can't either. They've got to walk around the desert for 40 years to kill off an entire generation just to make it into the promised land. And God still says about the generation that's going to make it in. They're wicked people. They have stiff necks and hard hearts. I know this people. I've seen them. Right? But point is, he gives them the tabernacle, restores this garden-like presence. Now, they're on the cusp of making it into the promised land, and they're there to drive out and judge those who are already there as a means of bringing about God's kingdom. They're going to establish God's kingdom by driving everyone out that's currently in the promised land. Do they do it? Spoiler alert? No. Not even close. All right. Now, one of the things that's really hard about the conquest, that's what we call this kind of period of time where Joshua is going to lead the people into the land of, of or to the promised land. One of the, there's several difficulties that present themselves. One is an ethical dilemma that we're going to have to talk about at length. We'll spend a lot more on, time on it next week, but there's an ethical dilemma. They're going to walk into a land. Now think about this for a second. They're going to walk into a land. They're going to go up to a city and they are going to desecrate it. They are going to lay waste to the city where not a single living thing survives at God's command. When you think about that, that presents, especially to the world outside the church, we, some of us grow up with these stories and we grow up singing Joshua fought the battle of Jericho and we're fine with that. But... When you take that story outside the walls of the church, and sometimes inside the walls of the church, but when you take that story outside, well, that has with it some ethical questions. How is that different than what Muslims are doing right now? Right? That's one of the hard questions we have to wrestle with. So we've got to talk about that. It has ethical dilemmas that we've got to answer with the conquest, and we'll spend a lot more time on that next week. Um, there's biblical uh, issues with it as well. They go in, they're told to do this in order to execute the rule and reign of God, and they go into the promised land, they don't do it. So what, what happens then? How do we make sense of that? What's God's, did God mess up by picking these people? What, what, what's going on? There's archaeological problems when it comes to this. For instance, the, the conquest, they burn everything to the ground, and, and there's just very little, if any, archaeological evidence that's turning up in the soil, which isn't in and of itself a complete problem. It's just one that we need to know about and be able to address what, what is really going on here. Um, so needless to say, the conquest has some issues in and of itself that we've got to unpack as we go through it. But the first thing that we've got to look at is at the very least the timeline of what's happening and when. What's the political situation that allows the children of Israel, as I said before, to walk into Times Square and just take it? 
Well, let's talk about it. First, we're, we're pretty sure at least the conservative dates on the conquest are somewhere between the years 1406 and 1399. Now, those dates can vary a little bit <clears throat> depending on when precisely the exodus was, but that's when conservative scholarship is going to put um, the, the date of the conquest sometime in that very short time, time frame. I mean, that's seven years that we're looking at there that it takes them to really get into the land. But that's, that's pretty much most conservatives are going are gonna to land somewhere in that range. Uh, we'll say give or take four years or so on either side, but it's going to be somewhere in, that, in a window about like that. Now, it's not until late, uh, until later in modern historians, they actually place the, the conquest of the, of the land in 1250 BC, which is I mean, you could see another 200 years almost later, or I should say closer to us, than, uh, than what the conservatives estimate the, the, um, the conquest. Why is that? Well, we talked about the exodus, and there was some debate about when the exodus actually took place. Did it take place under this pharaoh or under that pharaoh? Which one makes the most sense? Well, we kind of laid out a few, this, was, this would have been probably a couple months ago, uh, the reasons why we tend to side with more conservative scholarship on the dating, but all of those are not without their problems. It's very difficult to get the Egyptians in history to admit where they lost a whole bunch of people, all right? Turns out, nobody really wants to write that one down, all right? So, so you don't get a whole lot of evidence on a bunch of slaves walking out of a, uh, out of out of Egypt. So you're dependent on a lot of other things, and, and that turns out to be really difficult. So, but we laid out that argument a while back. Well, if you put the Exodus 200 years closer to us than what we do, 200 years further back down the road, remember BC works backwards in years. So uh, if you put it 200 years closer, well, then what are you going to do with the conquest? Well, then it's got to be 200 years closer. But when it comes to the conquest, the evidence for the conquest sim- is simply lacking in terms of archaeological evidence. So the liberal scholarship, and I don't necessarily mean that as a bad term, but the more liberal end of the um, discussion of when the conquest was points to cities like Bethel, and they see a layer around the 1200s that's charred completely. Somebody just set fire to the city. And they say, well, that must have been the conquest. The problem is the biblical data doesn't point to Bethel being a place where they went and burned things to the ground. And so you end up going, well, I guess we just have an argument from silence. It's all we've really got when it comes to the actual uh, layers in the archaeological data. So it's just lacking for a specific date. But what that means, I think, is that when it comes to proving when it happened, it seems that the burden of proof would lie on the skeptic more than the one who's claiming the dates that we claim. The reason is because internal to the Bible is a description of the date as to when the Exodus happened. We know when King Solomon built his temple, uh, it says in, um, do I have it there somewhere? 1 Kings 6.1 on the back page. says, in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt... In the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the mouth of Zeev, in the month of Zev, uh, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So we know there's a date on when the temple was built. We happen to know when the temple was built in 966. 
So that, that means that 480 years, you end up getting a date for the Exodus because it's given to us in the Bible. Well, if that's the case, then the skeptic is going to have to be the one to answer all those questions as to why the date changed and how we're supposed to read 1 Kings chapter 6. You tracking with me? Does that make sense? Everybody good? Yes? Okay. Um, now, when it comes to the actual time frame of them walking in and understanding the political dilemma that's going on, Canaan, especially in the late 15th century BC, is extremely fragmented. When we start talking about towns that are located in the land of Canaan, do not think Tuscaloosa. Okay, don't think Tuscaloosa. In fact, the, city of, the ancient city of Jericho was about six acres which is, I think, about the size of this campus. So this would have been the ancient city of Jericho. All right, if that helps you get a scope of the size of these cities, that's what we're talking about, all right? You can look back in the book of Numbers and see how many people, how many fighting men the Israelites had, but it was hundreds of thousands uh, of, of men. And so who knows, by the time of Joshua, it may have been into the millions, and they're walking into cities this size. All right. So just think about that for just a second in terms of scale. All right. <clears throat> so Canaan is just diversified. There's tons of different, uh, n- nobody's united. This is not the United States. This is uh, just the most diverse region. Nobody talks to one another. You got a city here in Jericho that's on our campus. You got another city in I, which is on North River's campus. Never the, never the two shall meet. They're ruled by different kings. They speak different languages. They don't interact that often. You're talking about completely different people groups. All right? However, there were times where even though they weren't one single nation, they coalesced in order to fight the Jews. Look at, uh, on, the, on the back of your um, page there, Joshua 9, 1 and 2. Somebody read that real loud. Yeah, when, when you have a common enemy, it's easy to, it's easy to join up sides, isn't it? So all the ites and bites, the termites, the parasites and all the ites got together and decided we're gonna, we, can, we can do this together. We're stronger together than we are apart. And so there were times where they did join together in order to fight uh, Israel. Now, um, here, here's where things get a little bit interesting because... Um, under Ach, here we go, Achmos the first, the Egyptians started to move into the Fertile Crescent. This is right around the year 1560 BC. The Egyptians start to move up into the Fertile Crescent and take possession of the land of Canaan. And that's a big deal because once they began to take control of it, Egypt is the most powerful beast there is. They're America, okay? Just, they're the United States of America walking into 
the land of Canaan and taken possession of it. The strongest military, the most money, there's, who's, gonna, who's actually going to stand up and fight them? Nobody wants to. Nobody. They will if they have to, but nobody wants to. And so Egypt takes possession of this in 1560, and they've got control of the land. And they don't relinquish control properly until, really, until Israel begins to establish a, a, a monarch. Okay, so if you think about that. If Egypt has control of it, and it's big enough that Israel just marched out of Egypt, now they're walking in and taking more of Egypt's territory. Well, surely Egypt's going to rise up and, and put Israel back in stocks, right? Well, uh, turns out, no. See, under the leadership of Amenhotep III, which is the one that is the Pharaoh of Egypt, when Israel begins to take control of the land, Egypt just, for almost no reason, loses interest in Canaan altogether. Amenhotep, it turns out, when they put him on the throne, he really liked art and hunting. He did not care one iota about foreign policy. In fact, we have letters called the El Amarna letters. And these letters are from kings in these Canaanite cities. They're writing back to Amenhotep III and they're saying, hey, there's marauders and the land is terrible and we need some help. Can you just come here and like just sort of put down some justice, please? No response. They don't care. Um, so... Amenhotep IV takes control of the land, and he cares less than his dad did about the land of Canaan. He cares nothing about foreign policy. Now, you have to understand how strange this is. You're in a world where the land you stand on is everything. The land you own is, is everything. And you have two pharaohs that rise up that just absolutely don't care about foreign policy? They don't care about keeping up the possessions and the riches that they have abroad? That spells disaster. Uh, we have a phrase in churches now that says, you're either growing or you're dying, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, that was certainly true back then. You're either expanding your borders or you're dying. So you need to keep going, right? And that's probably even still true today, more so than we want to admit. Um, now, uh, where, where was that? So Egypt started to lose interest in Canaan. Now, to further the story, the Assyrians are also out there in the land. And the Assyrians have been kept in check by the Mitanni, or you'll, you'll hear it also referred to as the Hurrians. The Hurrians is the people group. The Mitanni is their, is their biggest city. So they're often called, like, like Babylon, is called the Babylonians because their biggest city is Babylon. Um, the Hurrians are often called the Mitanni people because that's their biggest city. But the Assyrians and the Mitanni are not really big at this point, but they're kind of keeping each other in check. They're concerned with each other. To kind of put this on the map here, you have um, the... <laughs> You have, obviously, the Egyptians, which take control over all the land of Canaan. And they've even got some ties all the way up into here. Um, you have the Mitanni people, which are right here. Here's the biggest city. Mitanni is right there. The Hurrians are right here in this uh, place right there. And then the Hittites are right here, just north of the Promised Land. And the Hittites, because they don't want to mess with Egypt, they say, well, if we're going to expand our borders, 
where's the natural way to go? It's going to go this way. You don't want to go down into the promised land because then you're picking a fight with a, with a, a beast you can't, you can't win against. And so what they do is they start picking on the Mitanni people. Well, then the Mitanni people start picking back. And so they end up just kind of keeping each other in check and balancing out the power. All right, that's the first part of it, okay? But it keeps going. So the Hittites are right up here, up there on the north part. You, you saw them just a minute ago, the purple region. They're up there in what's modern-day Turkey. Um, they, uh, they're on the verge of becoming a dominant empire. They start to kind of build up their military. They're starting to kind of try to expand their borders. They're starting to think that they're big stuff. They're not yet ready to take on Egypt, but they are, they are on the verge of becoming that. But because they are growing in power and because they're taking out all the other people to the east and they're starting to kind of pick fights back and forth with each other, and because Egypt has lost interest in Canaan, nobody's really watching Canaan at all. The Hittites don't know that. They don't know that the Egyptians don't care about Canaan. In fact, no one really does except for the little city-state peasant kings that are throughout Canaan that keep sending letters back to Egypt that don't get any response. But nobody else knows that Canaan is kind of more or less up for grabs because Amenhotep 3 and 4 don't really care anything about the land. All right. So it leaves this power vacuum in the land of Canaan. So in Egypt, Amenhotep III, as I said, um, was on the throne during the uh, invasion and the occupation of Canaan. He was on the throne from 1417 to 1379. Um, to look again, remember just once again at the map, this is actually, this would, this would be what it actually is. Actually, Egypt owns this area. They would probably fight you if you came in there. They're, if they do fight, they're battling people that are coming up from the south. So they really don't care anything about Canaan. So it is wide open for the taking. Now, Amenhotep IV, he did something that was really kind of interesting and sort of an anomaly in Egyptian history. He started to focus on monotheism. He's, shift, he's shifting uh, Egypt to a monotheistic culture, which is unheard of outside of Israel. Israel, I'm telling you, in that day and age, is the only monotheistic culture ever. Nobody's even heard of this, all right? And all of a sudden, here's a monotheistic culture coming out of Egypt. Well, Amenhotep IV, I don't know if he's looking at Israel or not, but he starts uh, shifting Egypt to a monotheistic culture. But effectively what happens is he becomes more like a priest. He doesn't even really care about being Pharaoh, it seems. More than that, he spends most of his time focusing on the worship of one God and getting Egypt to worship one God. Happened to be the sun god, near miss, but we'll talk about that maybe at a later day. Um, so, so, uh, so Amenhotep IV is trying to lead everybody into, um, into a kind of a, a one God religion, as it were. And so eventually the Hittite empire begins to collapse. They at first thought that they were pretty big, a pretty big deal. And so they went into Syria and started to invade Syria and Syria just whipped them. And so they went back and licking their wounds, and they kind of built their military back up. They went back into Syria and kind of started to pick another little fight and started to do some campaigns there and won. But it turned out that they just weren't uh, big enough, and eventually the Hittite empire collapses. So now there's no dominant power in the region at all. 
Not only does Egypt not care about the, about the land that Israel is about to walk into, but there's just that now that the Hittites are gone, there's nobody that would care to take it even if they, or could take it even if they wanted to. And so um, eventually the Hittite Empire collapses about 1200 BC, and then up comes the Assyrian Empire. Now we all know Assyria. Assyria grows in power, they become really, really big deal, but they don't become a big deal until after Israel is already in the land. All right, but Assyria is kind of building up some of their uh, influence and they become dominant in the region. But as it turns out, they can't get past Syria. They're not strong enough yet to actually take out Syria, which, as it turns out, is a very important border between where the Hittites have, where the Assyrians now own, and the Promised Land. You see that? So here, is where the Syrians are. Not us Syrians, the Syrians, all right? So the Syrians are here. They're growing in power. The Assyrians are, the Assyrians are growing in power. They come over and take out the Hittites. Now they pretty much control this area up here, but in order to take this land, they would have to conquer Syria, which proves a force too dominant for them to mess with. So they don't. Keeps them out of the promised land. All right, so now what you've got is a, vac- is a power vacuum that's happening right here in the promised land, and that power vacuum lasts all the way until Saul takes the throne. Think about that. What you have during this time period is a geopolitical anomaly. Things like this just don't happen all the time. Where a country just loses interest in its territory, especially back then. Loses interest in its money, loses interest in its dominance in the world. Basically, Amenhotep three and four eventually lead to the collapse of the 18th dynasty in Egypt. That just doesn't happen that often. Not only that, but then to have all of the other armies and countries and places that could potentially take over that land a land, mind you, akin to Times Square, right? Prime real estate. Boardwalk and park place together, all right? And these countries are just not powerful enough to really pick on Egypt. They also have some entangled alliances. The Egyptian pharaohs are married to a couple of their princesses, so there's some entangled alliances that they've got there. There's some duties they owe to Egypt. They don't feel like they're big enough yet to really pick on Egypt, and nobody's gaining that kind of strength to really fight Egypt until much later. But not only that, they don't know that it's prime real, that it's open for the taking. Because they think, well, Egypt's got it. Plus, it's not worth the risk. Let's just be honest, it's not worth the risk. Even if it, even if it wasn't, even if they did know that it was open for the taking, it's not worth the risk of walking in. Well, Israel apparently doesn't care about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so they're able to just walk in. But what you see here, I think, is that God has prepared the geopolitical landscape and he has prepared the hearts of the kings, the pharaohs, as it were, to be in a situation where Israel can walk in and all they have to fight are the tiny little cities that stand before them. Get it? Think about that. 
How many men, how many fighting men Israel has? Because the men were big. That is it. Yes. Yes. Yes, it should have. This is why I think Joshua and Caleb come back and they're like, what are you talking about? We can take these guys. I mean, I think you're looking at numbers. Look at our numbers compared to theirs. Their size? Come on, really? Um, it's a problem of faith. It, it's, 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 um, it's not even really about the size of the cities. It's not about the numbers. It's a problem of faith. And we see this in 1 Samuel when David comes up to the tents when the, chil- the Israelites are standing on the hillside and on the other hillside is the Philistines and Goliath and he's standing over there and he's been standing over for days calling people out to battle. And all the entire army of Israel is standing on the hillside going, I'm not going out there. I won't do it. And Saul is the biggest of them all. And he won't go out there. And then you see little squirmy cheese-carrying David bringing food to his brothers on the front line, goes, I'll fight him. (laughs) I mean, it's a faith issue. But right before David's battle with Goliath, we see the Spirit came upon David. And it it led him to the point where he says, I'll take him. God will kill him. So it's a faith issue. Joshua and Caleb have it. The ten other spies did not. And so that ultimately is what it boiled down to. But you see how ludicrous it is. The first city they're going to come upon is, is the size of this campus. I mean, and you can't, yeah, you get the idea. It, it's crazy. Yeah. Does that make sense? See that the political landscape is key to understanding how they're able to just walk in. Of course, God tells them, look, I'm going to, I'm going to wash all this away from you, of course. But there's more that he's been doing behind the scenes than just that. In fact, we see one of the, one of my, one of the great verses that's, that's here, we see in Proverbs 21.1. I just want to read through some of these. Um, well, let's go to back to Deuteronomy 7, 22 to 24. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous for you. Uh, We could come back and talk about man's dominion over the animals and what they're intending to do and all of those kinds of things at some other time. But that's that's like Edenic imagery, I think, that's being presented there in in Deuteronomy. But the Lord your God will give them over uh, over to you and throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. And he will give their kings into your hand, and you shall make their name perish from under heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. Proverbs 21.1, love this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Uh, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? I love that. But he is unchangeable. And who can turn him back? What he desires, that he does. Romans 9, 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. We have to keep in mind that as the... And you just think about this as we talk about this a little bit more next week. Um, 
that all of this is a fulfillment of a prophecy that God gave to Abraham where he told him, I'm going to bring you back to this land and you're going to drive them out. And he tells him this in, in Genesis 15, 16. And he says, um, but it's going, to, it's, going to be in, it's going to be in 400 years because the sin of the Amorites is not full. So there's no question that what, Egypt, what Israel is to do is to come in and be a model for divine judgment. Part of the bringing in of the fullness of the kingdom of God is judgment. Complete eradication of evil. Now, what Israel is going to do, or is supposed to do, is a model for end times judgment. When Christ, the new Adam, fulfills that role and actually brings in complete and total judgment, subduing the earth and having dominion over it. So it, it completes the picture of what Christ actually does. Adam, Moses, Israel, all the kings all failed to do. Jesus is actually going to do. And then it says in Revelation, the gates are going to stay open. No unclean thing will enter it because Jesus sits on the throne, which is totally different than Adam. Questions, comments? Go ahead, Timothy. I mean, Micah boils this down. The prophets boil this down to, for, for Israel that what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with I mean, it, this is part of what it means to live out the original command of being appropriate image bearers of God is, and to have dominion over the earth is to execute justice. So Israel's going to do that, and we're going to deal with how do we think about that uh, a little bit more next week? But it's an important question. Other questions? Again, my intention was not to bore you tonight with all of that, but I think it's important. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, let's, let's pray. We'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, uh, thankful for just a time to get together and really talk about your word and what it means and how we understand it and all the background behind it. We know all of this fits together. We can only hope to understand uh, even just a little glimpse of it. And uh, we're grateful for anything that you would give us. And so we just pray. Um, we know that you're, uh, without your spirit giving us understanding, we haven't got it. And so we just pray that he would and it would continue to set in on our hearts. And as we wrestle with some really difficult concepts in the coming weeks, um, how we understand this and how we reconcile this with your goodness and and all of those kinds of things. I just pray that you would help us, um, that we wouldn't say things that are wrong, um, but that we would only testify rightly about who you are, um, that we would live in submission, glad submission um, to uh, you to, and to what we see and know about you, what you have revealed to us in your word. Um, 
we are thankful for this time together. And we pray that it, it bear fruit in the coming weeks and months and years, decades and centuries. In Jesus' name, amen.